Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 1. In his uh, book called Night, Elie Witzel tells of the first night he came to Auschwitz and the sight of the chimneys and the crematorium and the fire and the smoke and the ash that would pour on them all the time. What was on his mind, though, was the question that a man asked when the prisoners were made to watch the long death of a child. And his question to them was, to him was, where's your God now? Where's your God now? You know, people have asked that question down through the ages. Where is God now, especially in times of great distress and suffering? I'm sure it was on the minds of the Jews when Jerusalem fell to the heathens. Where is our God now? The temple was looted, and many of their best and brightest children were taken off into a foreign land. That happened in the year in the reign of Jehoiakim, which was the year 605 B.C., That's how the book of Daniel begins. But long before Daniel was taken away into exile, the United Kingdom of Israel was once ruled by Saul, David, and finally Solomon, and then it divided into two nations. The northern kingdom, known as Israel, sometimes the prophet called it Ephraim, was consistently wicked, worshiping idols, and forsaking the law of God. The southern kingdom was known as Judah. Thank you was often wicked too, but they had times of repentance and revival. The prophets of God warned of future judgment against Israel if she did not repent from her wicked ways. Israel did not listen, and God's judgment came upon them and upon his people in the form of defeat and dispersion by the Assyrians. What the Assyrians would do when they came in to conquer is they would come in and disperse you all over to the territories that they had so that you couldn't stay in uh, one area. They wanted you you all over the place. They tried to disperse you. The Babylonians wanted to bring you all in and then integrate you into their society. So it was a little bit different. Either way, you were there in exile, either way, out of their land. Assyria was eager to extend her empire then by adding the southern kingdom. She had just taken the northern kingdom. Assyria, very powerful, the most powerful nation in the world at that point in time. Egypt was, would have been a close second and was a world power before them. So uh, they had just disposed of the northern kingdom pretty easily, and they wanted to add Judah to the, the southern kingdom to their conquest. But God intervened and sparing Judah from the hand of the Assyrians. God pointed to the fall of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians as an object lesson for the people in Judah that still had not been exiled yet and said, listen, I warned you, I warned you, and now half of the promised land is gone. The northern kingdom is gone. But, and he warned them, there's a similar fate at their hand for the nation of Babylon. Babylon's going to do to you what the Assyrians did to Israel. But Judah refused to heed these warnings, and so captivity came upon the southern kingdom as well. Now, what's interesting here, and you may find this a bit ironic, is that when God needed to punish his people Israel to purge them from their sin, he chose the most despicable and despised place on all the face of the earth. 
the place where evil idolatry began because it originated in Babylon. And that's the place where they were going to be held captive. It's almost as if God was saying, you want idols? I'll send you to the home of idols. You want other gods? I'll send you to a place where they have so many gods they can't even keep track of them all. Well, before we get into our text this evening, I want to do a little background refresher. It's a little history lesson for you so that you know. First of all, I'm not sure if you need to jot this down. There will be a quiz later. Not kidding. How did Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon come into power? Let me just kind of explain what was going on. In 625 BC, so 20 years before he marches in, or we get into our text here today, 20 years before the Assyrians were beginning to lose some of their world power. They were starting to get challenged, they're getting older and not and, and starting to lose some of their land. Their empire was starting to collapse when their last great ruler died in that year, 625 BC. And that's when the Assyrian Empire really started to disintegrate quickly. But over in Babylonia, there was a man by the name of Nabopolassar. Okay? Nabopolassar. And the Assyrians controlled that whole region, including the land where Nabopolassar was. And, and Nabopolassar was a vice regent over Babylon. So in other words, he was kind of like their governor for that area. Syria still controlled it. Babylon was not a world power at that point in time, but pretty powerful. But the Assyrians had already conquered them, if you will. And so he was kind of like a vice regent to them. In other words, they had power over them. They reported to the Assyrians. So he gathered up, uh, when, the, when the king of Assyria died, Nabopolassar saw this as his opportunity to seize control of the failing Assyrian Empire. So he gathered up the Babylonian forces and he attacked Assyria. And they went to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, and they completely obliterated it. And I mean, when I say they obliterated it, they obliterated it. They chased all the Assyrians as far as they could chase them to completely destroy them. And by 610, so 15 years, Nebuchadnezzar had taken that whole region. In 15 years, he took control, basically, of the entire Assyrian Empire. Hard to believe. When you look at it on a map, you would go, wow. It'd be like saying, well, we just took over Europe and Russia in 15 years. And you remember, it's not like they had uh, planes, and you know, so they had to do everything on ground troops. But anyway, there was a remnant of Assyrians that escaped the clutches of Nabopolassar, and they ran for their life to make a last-ditch defense at a city called Carchemish. And Carchemish, uh, that's where they were going to make their last stand, if you will. Carchemish is uh, like Custer's last stand. It was down in the south, uh, near the very uh, border of it, of their land. And there was also a group of Egyptians there. And the Egyptians were ruled by Pharaoh Nico. Okay? Kind of sounds like a mafioso, doesn't he? Pharaoh Nico. Anyway, Pharaoh Nico looks up and says, Aha, the Assyrians have had it, and the Babylonians are going to be fighting the Assyrians, and if I'm smart, I'll take my whole army up there, and I'll wipe out both of them in the same battle. So uh, let's get our troops together, let's go to Carchemish, and we'll take over the Babylonians and the Assyrians in one fell swoop. Let's just get this done. So here at Carchemish was one of the greatest battles in the history of the world the Battle of Carchemish on the banks of the Euphrates River. 
And that's the setting of Second Chronicles chapter 35, when Josiah is king in Judah. Now, Josiah has had some success of his own, so he starts thinking he's pretty hot stuff. And he can, hang, he can hang with the big boys here in battle. So he sees the Egyptian army passing nearby on their way to Carchemish, and Josiah decides he's going to attack. And Pharaoh Necho gives him a warning, a stern warning, and says, basically, don't meddle where you don't belong, boy. And Josiah doesn't heed the message and ends up getting slaughtered. And within three months of that time, his son Jehoiakim is reigning in his place. And that's the Jehoiakim we're going to read about here in our text tonight. Now, in the meantime, Nabopolassar feels like he's getting old. It's time to turn things over to his son, Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar leads the Babylonian army down to Carchemish, where they destroyed the Assyrians, and that was the end of that empire. Matter of fact, they destroyed them so thoroughly that Alexander the Great trampled over Nineveh and didn't even know he was on top of the city. Like, that's where the great city of Nineveh... If you're not, if you're not aware of, well, if you go way back in history, Nineveh was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. It's this giant, massive city. And uh, Alexander the Great trampled over it like it was a dusty road. Nothing left of it. That's how, that's how thoroughly they destroyed it. And while he was at it, uh, Nebuchadnezzar wiped out the Egyptians as well. And Egypt really has never recovered from the dust of that battle. They've never been a world power since. Tell you the truth. That was the end of that great civilization as far as being a world power. So both Assyria and Egypt are defeated, and they even chased the Egyptians all the way back to Egypt. And on the way, they engulfed Israel. So that is when they took their first group of captives, which included Daniel. That was the first uh, captivity. So that's 605 B.C. in the third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah. So that's what was happening in the background leading up to our text tonight. Now, it's hard for us to imagine what was going on in the minds of Israel in the midst of all this upheaval. But especially later, as we'll see for these young Jewish captives, because they had been taken from their families and friends, taken from their homeland, which later in the book of Daniel called the beautiful land. It was beautiful. It is still beautiful. But they would never see it again. And they were brought to Babylon, the capital of the empire, the greatest city of that age. Everything about it, when you went to Babylon, spoke of power and glory of a Gentile nation. It was the center of paganism. Babylon was built on the Euphrates River in what is now called Iraq. And it was a vast metropolis surrounded by high double walls, wide enough for two chariots to race side by side in between these double walls. The inner walls had eight gates, each named after a god, small g. And coming from the north, the captives would have entered through the gate of Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. It was a massive tower covered with glazed blue bricks and decorated with brightly colored lions, dragons, and bulls, each representing a god of Babylon. So through the gate, the captive entered the sacred procession way. That's like the, what's that called in France? The Champs-Elysees, or what's that called? 
Everybody know? Everybody speak French? Champs? Brie, what is it? The the uh, the main way in France, the Champs de la Cise or whatever it is. Champs de la Cise. Okay, anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Somebody help me later. Okay. It was the ancient, if you will, and it led to the temple of Marduk. Okay, Marduk is the Babylonian god. Marduk. Okay, the main one. They had lots of them. He was the chief god, if you will. The street was lined with bright enamel walls, again depicting lions and gods. It was paved with limestone slabs, each inscribed with the name of their conqueror, Nebuchadnezzar. And all around it were magnificent buildings, palaces and temples. There were 53 temples in this city. And towering above it, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. These young people had never seen anything like it. It was like Paris and New York all rolled into one. And so it must have been dazzling and despairing all at the same time because it didn't look anything like Israel. Or Jude, I should say. So we get a sense of that. We get a sense of the sorrow they must have been experiencing and certainly did experience from Psalm 137, exactly, when one of the captives sang, By the rivers of the Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. That's all they did was remembering. It was nothing but a memory. Everything around them seemed to be proof that paganism was the new reality, that everything they thought they knew before was gone. And they were, could have easily been asking themselves, where is God now? And maybe many of the captives were. How easy would it have been for Daniel to become bitter towards Babylon, towards his own people, after all, it was Israel's sin on God's judgment, or even towards God, because verse 2 of our text tonight tells us that God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we're not told about the attitudes and actions of any of the other Hebrew hostages, but it's probably safe to assume they didn't respond the way Daniel and his friends did. The first chapter is critical in our understanding of the entire book of Daniel, and it provides the historical setting for this entire book. That's why we're spending some time on it. And especially revealing the mindset of Daniel and his three friends. So, it explains in part the reason for Daniel's rise to position of great influence in the Babylonian government. Because by now, they are the world power. All right, so let's look at verse 1 together, shall we? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, there's a lot of conflict about this but did it happen in the third year of his reign or fourth year of his reign? And if you've studied Daniel at all, there's kind of a big debate about which one it is. Now, we know when it takes place. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that's a very specific time. Immediately, critics will put up the red flag and go, well, hang on a second. Because Daniel said the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. And you see, Jeremiah said in the fourth year of the reign of Jehoiakim. So there you go. Bible contradicts itself. Jeremiah 25 says the fourth year. Daniel says the third year. And if they can't even get it straight, how can they be trusted in anything else? The fact of the matter is, Jeremiah used Hebrew dating. Daniel used Babylonian dating, which kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So the Babylonians 
the way they would keep record of time is they the first year they never considered it to be the first year of the reign. They called it the year of ascension. So even if I was, that whole first year was my year of ascension, my year number one would start after that first year. Okay, that's how they kept track of it. So you had a year of ascension, kind of like the honeymoon period, if you will, and then then it would start your reign. Not for the Hebrews, they would say, well, he was in power, so that's year one, year two, year three. So that's why you have a year difference between the two. Once again, whenever the Bible seems that it contradicts itself, there's either there's a problem. Either the Bible contradicts itself or we haven't fully understood. Let me just help you out here. The Bible never contradicts itself. Okay. So that's uh, just kind of put that in right. So there's no contradiction there at all. So let's Daniel 1. And verse 2. Let's look at verse 2 together then. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. That's going to become important later in our story. So Daniel 1 and 2 is the fulfillment of what God had previously declared through Isaiah, through Jeremiah, and other prophets of what was about to take place. For years, God had been sending prophets to the backsliding kings of Judah, warning them that the day of his patience had almost run out. And even when Israel had been his chosen people because of their sin, he was going to give them over to the power of their enemies. And that land was going to be desolate. And God connects the exile of judgment with their failure to keep the Sabbaths. If you knew that or not. He had told them when they came into the land that every seventh year was to be his. For 490 years, how many Sabbaths do you think they kept? Zero. Zero Sabbaths. Sabbatical years, I should say. Not Sabbath, sabbatical years. So they thought they would do better by tilling the land annually uh, and that they would be richer as a result of it instead of following God's plan. God had told them if they gave every seventh year to him, then he would give it so much abundance in the sixth year that it would last them to the harvest of the eighth year. Leviticus 25, if you want to check that for reference. And they evidently did not believe him and thought to better themselves by their own efforts. Thus, the word of the Lord was ignored and his commandment was broken. So for 490 years, God seemed indifferent to their disobedience in honoring the Sabbath year. He appeared to be winking at their sin, or so they thought. But God had taken account of it all. When they thought his law was dead, he sent Jeremiah to tell them that now they must go down to Babylon as captives for 70 years. Why 70 years? Which each for how many sabbatical years they had missed. So, uh, and uh, why did they need to do that? Because the land needed the Sabbath just as God had commanded. They need that seventh year. They imagined they had cheated God out of 70 years, but he squared the account, didn't he, by giving them that land into the power of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylonian, who carried them away to the land of Shinar. 
And they remained there until the 70 years had been expired and all of those Sabbaths had been made up. They were in exile 70 years, amazingly. But there was a second, even greater reason why God chose to give his people over to the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, if you will. For centuries, idolatry had been gaining ground among the Israelites. They had turned away from the living God and the true God to serve the false gods of the heathen. And Babylon was the home of idolatry. So the Jews were sent there so they might learn to loathe the idols that they loved so much. So here's point number one in your notes. God's purposes are never defeated. God's purposes are never defeated. You know, at first blush, when we read these first, you know, giving you the history and telling you what was going on behind the scenes, it sure looks like God's plan to protect his people has been thwarted, doesn't it? I mean, they've just been carted off to Babylon, and they're going to be there for 70 years. So if you're just looking at it from the outside, you'd be thinking, well, I don't know. God's plan doesn't seem to be working very well here. And he said he was going to protect them, and he was going to fight their battles for them, and here they are being carted off to the land of idols, to the center of evil, to Babylon. But the opposite was true. God had not been knocked off his throne. That's impossible, by the way. He was, in fact, governing everything. He was still sovereignly in control. And that's really the testimony of this entire book. In fact, verse 2 tells us that when Nebuchadnezzar came to Jerusalem, the Lord gave Jehoiakim. The Lord is the one. So the pagan king was simply God's rod of discipline on his people. And from the beginning, God had warned Israel that they rebelled against him, and if they were disobedient to his law, they would be punished. They would be disciplined. You know, Moses told them that in Deuteronomy 28. If you do this, this you know, blessings. If you don't do this, curses, right? I mean, you're going to face God's wrath. So way back then, he was telling them, both Isaiah and Jeremiah warned the nation about Babylon. But the people wouldn't listen to their prophets. Finally, God's patience ran out and judgment came. A major theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. And if there's one major theme of this book, it's that God rules the nation and God is faithful to his people. And some understood that, but not everybody. Not everyone who was brought to Babylon was asking, where is God now? Some knew exactly where he was. You know, in spite of what it looks like, the exile is not a disruption of God's plan for his people. It's actually part of it. It was actually part of it. Throughout history, there have been times like it seemed that God's plan had been thwarted, but we should never be fooled. God's plan is always moving forward in your life as he wills. And sometimes what seems like a setback is actually a step forward. How about persecution in China? If you were to look at that, you would say, wow, it looks like China is finally gaining some ground and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden, a government comes in and persecutes them and wipes out every Christian. Millions, millions are killed. You would go, well, I guess that's the end of Christianity in China. Not so fast. Uh, Not only was God's plan not thwarted, it actually resulted in the propagation of Christianity throughout China. There are, so many, there are over a million house churches in China. Do you realize that? That's amazing when you think about that. What was once completely desolate of Christianity, or so it seemed, is now, well, of course, a million people or so in China. is like a drop in the bucket. But still, when you think about it, you know, what people thought was going to be evil, God, it was still it was all part of God's plan. 
Matter of fact, every time they, per- they prosecute or persecute the church, I should say, it flourishes. And the same can be true of our ministry here at PBC as well. Sometimes we're going to face setbacks. Sometimes we're going to face challenges in our own ministry that will cause us to doubt whether God's still in control. But he always is and always has been. God's purposes are never defeated. And it's important for us to remember that in our times of difficulties, in our own lives as well. Sometimes we're facing things in our life and we'll wonder, how can this be part of God's plan? How can this possibly? This is a horrible thing that's going on. Or it's a tragic loss. Or it's a, that's a devastating news. Or why would I be in this relationship where, why, you know, why would God have me in the middle of this storm? How could this possibly part of, be part of God's plan? But it is. See, God even uses those trials and that, that persecution to, to draw you closer to him, to get you to quit relying so much on yourself and to look to him for your strength. So let's look at verse 2 here. <clears throat> Again, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the vessels, right, into the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. Okay. Anybody recognize where this uh, word came, where the word Shinar, did anybody know where that's from uh, earlier in the Bible? Yeah, Shinar is uh, also where uh, the Tower of Babel, it's the ancient land of the Tower of Babel, Babylonia, the land of Babel. Okay, anyway, a little that's, that was worth the price of admission right there, wasn't it? All right. You guys are like, ooh, look at that. Ooh, that's interesting. Thanks. All right. See, when you thought I was sleeping in my study, I was actually digging up little gems like that. All right, here we go. So there's three waves of the Babylonian captivity. The first group was taken in 605 B.C. That's what's being described here. Daniel's in this group. A second group containing 10,000 captives is taken in 597 B.C. That's when Jehoiachin, not Ken, Chin, uh, and Ezekiel the prophet are taken during that, that exile. And the third one, the final group, was taken at the time of Jerusalem's destruction, which took place in 586 B.C. That's the, the first one. Okay? And remember, that's actually a fulfillment of a prophecy that Isaiah gave to King Hezekiah, and we see that in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 18. So let's take a look at that, shall we? Let's look at Isaiah's prophet, uh, prophecy, 2 Kings. Chapter 20, verse 18. And remember, this is when uh, Hezekiah showing all the Babylonians. This is long before, right? Long before there were an empire yet. And he's showing all the Babylonians his treasure, right? Uh, so you can, actually, we'll pick it up at verse 12. 2 Kings 20, verse 12. At that time, Barodach Baladan, a son of Baladan, the king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he had heard that Hezekiah had been sick. Oh, yeah, he was. Hezekiah listened to them and showed them all of his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and the house of his armor and all that was found in his treasuries. Come on in. Here's where I keep all the good stuff. 
There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Look at verse 14. Then Isaiah, the prophet, came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, They have come from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, uh, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered them, They've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that not shown them. Then Isaiah said to King Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that's in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to the very people you just showed all your treasure to. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your sons who shall issue from you, whom you will beget, will be taken away, and they will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. So, uh, notice there, uh, and of course that's exactly what happened, right? That's exactly what happened here. So go to point number two then in your outline, and know this. Not only is that God sovereign over all things, right? Not only is that God's plan cannot be changed, not thwarted. Here's the second one. God's people will be oppressed in the world. God's people will be oppressed in the world. Sometimes that oppression, like what we're seeing here tonight, is part of God's judgment. Other times, God allows it to bring it to bring to fruition His sovereign plan. Sometimes it's part of God's plan. We just don't understand it. We don't have enough information to know it. But we know this: we know our God is a good and loving and gracious and merciful and compassionate God. And we can remember all of the things that he's done in our lives. And if we ever have those little times of doubt, we can always remember those things about our God. And we know that he has promised that all things, right, for those who are called all things, he will turn into good, right? It will be for our good. Now, that doesn't mean that everything that comes into our life is good, right? Amen? Okay, not everything that we have to deal with is good. But we have the confidence of God's word that he will use it for our good, what is God's ultimate good in, and from God's perspective? What is the ultimate good in our life? To be transformed more and more into the image of his son. So as God's people, we're going to face oppression and difficulty in this world. And there are times when that impression, that oppression is really intense. There are times of great suffering. Some of you have suffered greatly. There are times of great pain. Some of you are in pain even now. But rather than despair, we should understand that oppression comes as we live distinctively as God's people. Matter of fact, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, what? Will be persecuted, not might be, not could be. Will be. Matter of fact, I would tell you that the more distinctive you are for Jesus Christ in this world, the more persecution you're going to face. The more on fire you are for Jesus, it's like painting a big bullseye on your, on your head, right? Because the last thing that the enemy wants is for you to be walking around talking about Jesus and raising up others who will come under the admonition of the Lord and sharing Christ and living for Christ because Satan knows that that means that we are going to multiply. The last thing he wants to do is have Christians multiply. 
But oppression can also come because of sin and disobedience, and that's what's happening here. God put his people into exile because of their lack of distinctiveness and their idolatry. And the same thing could be said of the church today. The church today adopts more and more of the world's practices and ideas and culture into the church. It becomes more and more marginalized in culture. Did you notice that? The more, <coughs> the more we try to look like the world, the more the world just kind of folds us in. You know why? Because we're not distinct from the world anymore. We look just like them. So every time somebody says, well, we need to do this so that we're a little more uh, relatable to the world, that's not our role. Matter of fact, we're to be distinct from the world. We're in the world, but we're not of this world. Instead of being distinctive, as God calls us to be, the church has fallen into the trap of trying to be more palatable to the world, more culturally acceptable. So we water down the gospel message, and then we water down our doctrine, and then we water down our response to sin in the church. And before you know it, we're a watered-down church, and we look just like the world. And when that happens, we're no longer distinctive in our culture. We have become the culture. And that can become, that's true individually as well. We can be so concerned, or we can, or can be too, uh, yeah, more concerned about what others think about us than we are about what God thinks about us. Think of how backwards that is. We can want validation and acceptance more than we want holiness and sanctification. We can want to seek the approval and the applause of men instead of the glory of God. Beloved, we will face oppression and difficulty in this world. Bank it. Mark it down. It's God's word. It's going to happen. If it hasn't happened already, I would challenge you, are you living distinctively enough for Christ? If they don't know who you are and you're not facing any persecution, the question would be, are you living distinctively enough for Christ? But how we respond to that oppression, how we respond to that persecution is going to show either the depths of our character or the shallowness of our faith. You turn up the heat, things boil to the top. And so when the heat gets turned up, how are you going to respond? Are you going to respond like Daniel responds here? Or are we going to respond like probably the rest of those besides Daniel and his friends responded? All right, one more quick point, and then we'll need to stop here. And we'll pick up the rest of these verses next time. I tried to get all the way to seven. I just couldn't do it. All right, here we go. Point number three. <coughs> God's presence is inescapable. God's presence is inescapable. What do I mean by that? That means there are going to be challenging in worldviews to Christianity. How do I know that? Well, because since the fall, they've been opposed to everything God does. And so uh, that should not be something that's unexpected to us as believers. Should that be something that's caught as a huge surprise to you as you read your Bible, that some people just stand against God? They, they oppose everything God stands for. They oppose they oppose his law, they oppose his rule, they oppose his sovereignty, they oppose his... They, they don't want anything to do with God. But here again, we are his witness in this world. We are called to be the light. We're the ones who are the living testimony of what God has done in and for us. We are in the body of Christ. We are to be distinctive from the world. Why do I keep hammering that point? Because when we start getting into Daniel and his three friends... 
they're living distinctively for the world, and they're going to face some very difficult choices. Matter of fact, choices that could cost them their lives. And they're going to have to make a decision. Am I going to live for God and no matter what the cost? Or am I going to fold into culture so I can just step back away from some of this persecution because it's getting really hot in here? And see, all of us have that same choice. That's why Daniel's one of my favorite books because I know it was centuries ago, 625 B.C., so almost 3,000 years ago. But it still applies today, doesn't it? I mean, we don't live in Babylon, but we do live in Babylon. <laughs> we do live in Babylon. All right. So here again, we're as witness to the world. We're the light in the midst of the darkness, and I mean that for PBC as a whole and individually, because we are the church. We are the church, individually and the body. All right. Where is God now? God is still sovereign, and he's still faithful. God's purposes are never defeated. God's people will be oppressed in the world, and God's presence is inescapable. A lot of people aren't going to like it, but it's here, and it's not going to change. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the challenge of your word in these first couple verses, Lord. We've got a history of what's happening here. Get just a brief introduction into Daniel, but Lord, what a wonderful book this is. What encouragement it's been to the saints over many, many, many years, especially, Lord, in times of great persecution and trial and times, Lord, where the world seems to be winning. So easy for even believers to ask, where is God now? Where is God now in the midst of my pain? Where is God now in the midst of my suffering? But Lord, you are sovereign and you are faithful to your people. And so, Lord, we can count on that and we can hold and cling to that even in the midst of our trial, even in the midst of our suffering, even in the midst of our pain. And so I thank you, dear Lord, that we have your wonderful truth and we have your indwelling Holy Spirit and we have your hope hope we have in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for this encouragement time in your word, encouraging time in your word. Lord, bless us as we start this new week. I pray, Lord, that we'll dig deep into your word each day, spend time in prayer, draw closer to you, and as you draw closer to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.